Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with your host, Ken Castroco. Please hit that follow button so that you will not miss another podcast episode. Every episode, we interview an ordinary but extraordinary person on their identity journey. An identity journey is your unique journey that you have taken in your life to get to where you are now. That journey is not only fascinating, but inspiring and encouraging to others because others can relate to your struggles and your victories, which can give them hope and get them unstuck. Ultimately, my goal is to empower people not to only understand, but truly embrace their true selves, unlocking their full potential and living a more authentic and fulfilling life. Knowing who you are can change the way you see the world and others around you. When you know who you are, you are powerful. Today, my guest is Mike Holmes, I met Mike through Silver State Striders Running Club. The first time I worked with Mike in an aid station, he was engineering some kind of contraption for the aid station so that we could have lights at night. He worked so hard to make sure we had everything we needed to serve the people that we had at the aid station. That's Mike. He's a servant and a teacher. He cares deeply about people and loves to have fun. Strap in and have fun listening to Mike Holmes' identity journey. Mike was born and raised in Florida and has lived in the Reno area since the late 1980s. Mike has an extensive background in construction and owned his own construction company for 25 years. Mike has a master's in executive management from St. Mary's of California and was a professor at TMCC from 2006 to 2021, teaching construction and design. He has been an adjunct professor at the University of Nevada, Reno since 2021 Mike has worked overseas and stateside, working on numerous large construction projects. Mike earned his Eagle Scout in 1973, married to former Washoe County District Attorney and retired Municipal Court Judge Dorothy Nash Holmes. They have two children and six grandchildren. Mike has completed 50 distance races, including multiple Boston Marathons and the Western State's 100-mile endurance run. Please help me welcome Mike Holmes to the podcast. So today I have Mike Holmes, and this is going to be a lot of fun. Obviously, I met Mike through the running club, through Silver State Striders, and throughout the years we have done a lot of aid stationing together and hung out, and, and so welcome, Mike. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for being here. So we're going to start at the beginning, like we do with everybody else. And I, I've had one of my guests say that they can remember back to when they were two or three years old. And I'm like, that really blows my mind. So so in this identity journey, we're going to start at the beginning. So how far back do you remember? My first, uh, my first memory that I can recall uh, was as a three-year-old. My grandmother worked for the railroad. Mm-hmm. And uh, he took me on a train ride, mm-hmm. and I remember, I remember the train uh, departing the station, waving at my dad, and mom, and my grandmother out the window, and that's the that's the beginning of my memory, if you will, of this journey or tour, as I call it sometimes. And where was that? In Pensacola, Florida. And so we were going to take the train up to Flemington, Alabama. And then they were going to meet us up there and drive us back. Mm-hmm. But he was—he worked for the railroad, and 
This was, and, and my grandparents, my dad's parents lived right next door to us there because of coal. I was the closest and the oldest of the grandkids next door. In our family, there were four of us. And so what do you, back then, so your dad and what did what is your dad doing? And he was worth that. He, he worked. My dad was a whiz with numbers. He never had any college training, but he could do, he was a wizard with numbers. He could do statistics in his head. So he, he was in the marketing department for a power company. And, and then he also had a, had a second gig seasonally. He was a calculator at the dog track. And the dog track is very much like a horse track and, and in Florida highlight where you have odds and, you know, winnings and, you know, all kinds of different tickets and quinellas and perfectas and trifectas and big quinellas and stuff like that. And the, the track has to calculate the winner's share almost immediately after the races are done. And it's the same as a horse track or anything else. But back in those days, they had to do it manually. They didn't have, they didn't have calculators like we had. So my dad did everything manually. And then, of course, the state had an auditor's team that did it, verified everything. And then they had a money room that calculated and verified all of the money to tie out with all the mechanical numbers and the ticket sales and all the percentages because the state tax had to get collected. And then what was left after the track took their child went back to the went back into the winter school. Team. And if you have five winners, then five winners got a lot more than 500 winners. So my dad did all that stuff and he did his so he did his particular ticket so fast that he would do and help the other calculators verify that stuff and he would even give a check to the state auditors that were there and then he was in real estate later on and he could he could go through a closing statement for across the table and check the math upside down you know so yeah and and i guess some of that i don't know if you want to call it ocd or math technical but that's one of the things that i got for bill I was going to say, yeah, yeah, you're, you're very engineering mind. That's what I see. That's yeah. I've got an analytical side of me, but ironically, you know, between your left brain and your right brain, as I've found out, I'm pretty much right on the fits. I'm not an extremist on either side. So I can be creative when I have to be with my architectural history and, and some of those things and or problem solving at the same time, I can be very OCD and objective and you know, not wavering and it's very predictable. I'm very prompt and long time. And so, but, but for most things I can see both sides and then I know what I have to, right. I know what I have to treat down to deal with it. So, okay. So did you go to a grade school? Yeah. I, 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 I went to my dad's, I went to the same grade school that my dad did in Pensacola and my sister and I did. And my dad's, uh, in fact, it was a small town at the time. We were the only homes in the phone book for many, many years. My father's family, both his father and mother, their parents were in the turpentine business. In those days, they slashed pine trees and harvested sap, much like you would do for maple syrup, and then boil it and refine it. And they would move from town to town. And because the, the routine was you couldn't, you couldn't slash or harvest sap from a forest until it was three years because it would traumatize the trees to a point to where it would expose them and they would die. And again, the parents were partners together. So one side had 12 kids, the other side had 13. So every year they moved and picked up, you know, somebody or lost somebody. So I have relatives from Jackson, Mississippi, all the way to Tallahassee, Florida. And that's about a, I don't know, 400, 500, oh wow, diameter of Henry Lewis, you know, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, that whole panhandle Gulf Coast, Scotty which was, you know, a, a 
a target-rich environment for yellow pine. And of course, after World War II, natural turpentine went away because synthetics put that put that business on the shelf. And my my grandfather and grandmother, they were kids from respected families. They married and settled when parents had left Pensacola. They stayed there. So, and so that's 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 how we got to start or where we we started in Pensacola. Again, well, I, I tease people. I say, yeah, I grew up in L.A., and they don't believe that for a second. I said, no, the lower Alabama, but <laughs> the, the state line was only 17 miles away. Right. And are the Redneck Riviera, which a lot of people understand, you know, so. But Panhandle, Panhandler, it's all the same. Yeah. People know, you know, it's that upper left northwest corner of Florida. Yeah. So I'm, I've been, I had the pleasure of going to the Floribama. Yeah. Before that, I guess they shut it down, right? No, no, it's still still there. Do it quite well. They have bullet tossing and contests. Uh, you know, I'm in the same, I'm, I grew up in the same hood as Jimmy Buffett, so I can relate to most all the, the Pascagoula run and, you know, some of the other things. Mobile was 50 miles away. That's where we did most of our concerts as a teenager. And, you know, the ironic thing was New Orleans was 200 miles west and Tallahassee was 200 miles east. <laughs> You had the best of going in the world. I had the best of it all. I lived about, you know, 20 minutes from the beach. So I got all of that. I got, you know, growing up as a kid in, in the Miracle Strip. It's, you know, I can't brag enough about Pensacola in the beach. Uh, you can take a handful of cane sugar and a handful of sand, and you can't tell the difference looking at it. It's that white and bright. Wow. And it's, and it's well, it's just special. It's a doubt. So how many kids in your family? How many Four of us. I have two sisters and a, and a brother in our family. I was the oldest growing up, and we've all scattered since then. But it was a great place to grow up and fish and play and, you know, stay out until the streetlights came on. And, you know, if you did something wrong, the, whoever's yard you were in did, disciplined everybody. There was nobody that got a cart, you know, a pass. Right. And, yeah, so, they, you know, it was a little bit of a, you know, I'm, a little bit of a different time, let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah, much, much different. But, but we endured it. We endured it and survived and thrived. So, yeah, I like to think so. Yeah. So, growing up in sports, that were you, what was your main involvement when you were growing up? Oh, you know, I, ironically, I was a runt. I, I was always coordinated hand to eye, you know, whatever. But and I was always self taught. But, you know, first year of high school and everybody has to go off of football. And, you know, I, I was on the football team and I, was, I felt like we're like a tackling dummy. You know, we were, I think we were 0 and 7 or 0 and 8 that year. And I still hadn't played in any of the games and we had lost like, you know, 60 points to nothing or something. I still hadn't played until I started thinking about this. This is, you know, I got better things to do. I can, I can at least sit in the stands with the girls and be worn my time. <laughs> So I, I did one year, but I, I could do, like I said, I could do things perfectly. You know, I, I could golf, I could play tennis. I didn't realize that at the time, because I'd done water sports, water skiing and surfing and, you know, diving and that kind of stuff. But only after we got out west, I, I don't want to say out west, only until I got, you know, out of, out of high school and I tried snow skiing. And that's really something that's... Talk to me about that. What was the first time you went snow skiing? It was, it was in college. And I would say 1977 or so, we got the car and, you know, dumb and stupid. We drove nonstop from Florida to Boone, North Carolina. <laughs> it was about a nine-hour drive. And we, we didn't know what we didn't know. We got out. We were in Levi's. And we had cotton and everything. And we got, we got up there to 
to to the to the ski resort and the ski resort there was just like a 1200 foot high hill and all it was was ice and of course they had street lights and so we got there and we went nice skiing i don't want to call it skiing it was more like sliding on your ass you know but after that made another couple of trips up there from when i was at school in gainesville out at florida and but i really i really got into it enjoyed it when i was living and working in paris in europe because the the parisians that i was working with that was a weekend activity the bus would show up on Friday afternoons at five o'clock. You'd throw your skis and your kid in the in the bus. If you'd ride a couple hours, stop, have dinner. You get back on the bus, sleep, and then when you woke up, you were in the Alps. Man, you skied all that day. You slept in the hotel. You got up and skied all that day on Sunday, and then you got back on the bus and you drove for a couple hours. You had dinner. You got back on the bus, and then you showed up in Paris at you know five o'clock in the morning on Monday. And well, we got summed up, came back and dealt. So I did that and. You know, well, I, while I still have it skiing in Utah and Colorado and, you know, other places here other than Nevada and California, I've skied France, Germany, Austria, you know, Switzerland. It, so I'm, I'm quite comfortable on the white stuff. Right, right. <laughs> That's awesome. So did you, out of high school and everything, Obviously, from there you went to college. Or, or, yeah, I was the, I guess then I was the. Well, that was kind of an interesting how I got there. Growing up in Pensacola, that's the home of the Blue Angels, the Naval Aerobatic Jet Team. It's also the home of where all of naval aviation training takes place. So I grew up with planes and jets, helicopters, the Navy and the Air Force. Everything there's a huge military influence aspect in that particular area of the country. And so when I started thinking about what I wanted to do once I got into high school or just before high school, I said, I don't even want to fly. I just want to fly jets. And so that was my that was my bullseye until I was a junior in high school. The summer between my junior and senior year, because I was so involved in Boy Scouts and some other things in the community, I had an appointment from the congressional rep for our district to go to the Air Force Academy or the Naval Academy. So the naval base there was the host for having, you know, to, to conduct the medical exams. And when I went out there along with the, all the other officer candidate people, candidates and, and, you know, for officer candidate school, it was determined that I was a borderline colorblind individual. And there's a test for pilots. It's called the Farnsworth Lantern. They put you in a dark room. From 15 feet, you have to identify nine sets of dots, red, green, or white. And you have one second to identify those. And in order to get color vision approved status, you have to identify all nine sets. And I can only ever get seven out of the nine. So, you know, if it's red, red, white, green, whatever it is. So then they gave me the, the book with the circles and, you know, the, the different patterns. And, had, and I could immediately see the colorblind number or letter. And if you give me a few more seconds, I can see the, the normal color vision. No, but that's not good enough for the Air Force, so they put the thumbs down on me. Um, the the Navy said, oh, no, you can still come to Annapolis. You know, Roger Staubach was colorblind, quarterback, you know, from Dallas Cowboys. And I said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life on a bloody boat. You know, I'm on a fly. So I cried for, you know, a month, moped around. And I'd always liked drafting and projects, mechanical and wood shop and stuff. I'd done mechanicing, you know, rebuilding my my automobile out of necessity and 
So some of the guys that I was hanging with, their brothers were in the construction management program at Florida. And Florida had at the time, and still does, the oldest program starting back in the mid-30s. And there was an architect, an engineer, and a contractor all got together. They said, we need, we need street smart construction managers. We don't need obsessive compulsive engineers. We don't need wingnut architects. And we need people that have a little bit of business about them, you know, accounting and finance and law and stuff. And so they created this, this three-part degree. And the beauty about it was it was a four-year program. It was in-state. And the graduates from the program made more money than five-year assembly years. So I said, I'm all in. <laughs> and the fact that it was in-state. So I, I went to school my first year. In, at the junior college there in Pensacola. And then I stayed out of school for a year and worked three jobs and saved all my money because I didn't have a ticket anymore like I had thought when I was going to go to one of the academies. And so then I transferred and, and, and got to Florida. And then I went, you know, nine out of 10 quarters. So I actually finished college in three years, but it took me four because I stayed out, had to save my, save my coin to do it. <laughs> And then I talked my sister into coming down there. She went to school and met her husband there, and they took off and did nursing and a whole bunch of other things. So it was a great experience. It was it was a wonderful thing. It was a segue from a lot of the guys that I clung around with working as a teenager into college at the Boy Scout camp for six or seven years. That's that's a big part of where and who I am. While I didn't have an older brother, I had a lot of older brothers that took me and showed me and imparted you know some pretty good valued systems that I've, and, and taught me about life, everything from, you know, drinking and girls, ethics, you know, character, all kinds of stuff. And then those same guys became my roommates at college. And so those same guys were in our wedding. And those same guys I huddle up with and see, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen some of them in a couple, two, three years, but we're due for a reunion this since next year in Florida. So I'll, I'll make the mill run. So the Boy Scout camp, this that this makes a lot of sense to me, and I know you were a Boy Scout. You told me that before. Uh, what were some of the major things that you got from? You tell us about a couple of those things that you got from. Well, in a in a in a different time, because girls were not part of the Boy Scout program when I was in it, because this was back in the '60s and in the '70s. So boys could be boys in a different way than they can now. Obviously, there's a lot of political correctness that's changed with the times and a lot of other things. But the gang the gang that I hung with and the and the leaders that I was dealing with and 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 had mentoring me and my troop and in the organization working in you know for you know seven or eight weeks of summer, man, it was all about understanding when it's time to work, you work hard. When it's time to play, you play hard and, you know, everything, you know, you've got you've got assignments, you've got chores, you've got obligations, you've got commitments. And at the same time, the exposure to all of the different things that I learned. I learned to drive in the Boy Scout. I mean, I learned on on a World War Tour, World War Two Willis Jeep and a and a great big two ton truck, a flatbed, a metro, which was a van, a tractor, and you know, I'd learned to drive when I was fourteen, you know. And so later on, it was not a big deal for me to get into a truck and, you know, if the shift was on the column or on the floor or you know, I thought I thought People were cheap, right? Because the starter was a button on the floor. It was, it was like a double dimmer switch used to be. And, and at the same time, mechanicing and how to, how to be flexible and, you know, plan things. 
But the main thing for me is it exposed me through the through the rank advancements and the skills that you were exposed to, the different life life skills that I still to this day feel an obligation to pay forward and to pass on to others. And that's come back home to me and things that I'll, you know, always get chill buffs and break out the tears about some of my some of my kids. You know, what they told me afterwards, years later. And it's it's making it all very worthwhile. Yeah, is there a is there a kid that you could remember off the top of your head? Yeah, I can remember bunches though. The ones, the one that probably, you know, and and I shared my experiences growing up because at the time when I when I got into the scoutmaster role was when our son was a scout and and you know he made he attained his eagle rank as well. And some of the other kids, but I was teaching. I, you know, I was out of the scoutmaster role ten or fifteen years or something. And and one day, this man, somebody yelled my name, and I turned around and looked, and I and I said, "God, that's Russ." Yeah, uh, Russ Marlar. And he came running up to me, and I hadn't seen gosh, him or his two boys in ten or fifteen years. And he said, "I just talked to Ken, and Ken at the time had signed up and was in the Marines." Um, and was in Iraq and he had called his dad and said something to the effect. He says, by the way, he says, I want you to go find Mr. Holmes. When you find Mr. Holmes, I want you to tell him that the first aid that he taught me as a second class or as a first class scout, you know, back when he was 11, 12, 13 years old, he says, I used some of that same first aid and I saved one of my guy's lives because he was bleeding out. And he said, I understood what I had to do. And I mean, to this day, I just get, I just get goosebumps while I hear, you know, and then I hear stories back, you know, from some of my students about how some of the things that I've done in class or over the years with them, mentoring or coaching or, you know, doing things to tell them and get them ready for the street, how much more it's made it. And, and I've always, you know, enjoyed reading teacher course evaluations and, hearing what they have to say, and then later all reminding them what they, mm-hmm. they put off, what they put up, you know, so. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, those kinds of things are, are what makes it all worth it. Yeah, yeah. So your son was an Eagle Scout, too? Yep. Yep. And he was, was he, was that here in? Here in Reno. In Reno. Yep. Awesome. So coming out of that, so out of the college experience and getting that degree, where did life take you then? Well, I ironically, the part about going into the Navy and not wanting to spend the rest of my life on a boat came back to bite me because one of the things that I wanted to do was get out and, and see the world. When I, when I was, I had not even crossed the Mississippi West, westward until after I graduated from college. So I was pretty limited in exposure. Most of our traveling was, you know, to see relatives in Tampa or Orlando to go to Disneyland or something. And with my dad working those two jobs, you know, we had Thursdays, Thursdays, Thursday nights, and all day Sundays. So those were the days that we did family things. And then the rest of the time, you know, we had to choose from what we could get in and get out of on our own. Because my mother is probably still one of the only four or five people that I know would like that's never had a driver's license. Yeah, kind of, you know, so, but really? Yeah, true to, the, true, true to this day, she just never got a driver's license. And so we didn't have that that convenience of loading up and going unless that was you know with the wagon and whatever. But so when I got into Florida and and started you know looking at the companies and the opportunities to do that, I I really I really wanted to 
to get international. And I picked a company that promised to get me overseas, and boy, did they ever. So for the next nine or 10 years, I spent most of that in an international market, either in Central and South America, the Caribbean, in, in Europe, or, or in the Middle East. I like to tease people or tease that, I, you know, I came, when I was repatriated, we came back to the U.S., we picked San Francisco, the Bay Area, and to sell, and then I commuted back and forth to New Jersey to finish a bridge, and I, and I tell people that was my last foreign job. <laughs> yeah, some of the stories, I mean, you've told me some of these stories, I think they're fascinating. Some of the stuff you used to do as far as getting stuff from overseas back to the United States, vice versa. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we had a, a, the company I went to work for was, a, was what we call a, a heavy engineering instruction and engineering company. They did their own design work for bridges, harbors, tunnels, dams, big things. And most of those big things required heavy lifts of hundreds of tons. We had, we had derrick barges, we had tugboats, we had pile driving hammers, you know, we had all kinds of different things that would that would allow us to pick up and transport concrete girders for bridges or pick up a platform like you see that's an offshore drilling rig. And and some of these loads would be yeah. 50 tons, 100 tons. We had a, a, a self-propelled crane crane ship that I had to organize. You know, they were on their way from New Orleans to Africa. They passed by Trinidad, and I had to organize a charter a helicopter to transfer 15 welders that were arriving tonight on a helicopter to hit the ship when it came by and they were slowing down past that, uh, when, it, when it was going by Trinidad. And, you know, so we had, and, and the Sirius, I think, would lift 1,500 tons. So, I mean, these were, these were big, you know, these were big, serious endeavors. And so most of, like I said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life on a barge or a boat. <laughs> I spent a lot of time on crew boats and tugboats and high seas and, you know, so that's that was just part of the game. That was just part of the fun. But heavy lifts and big projects and things like that, that's what I was really doing in my first life before we came back stateside. And and after that, where did you go well, into? Well, we got into San Francisco, and, and by this time, Dorothy and I were married, and we had our second child, Zach. And so he was the, he was the third carpooler that got us in the express lane going into the city in and out every day. And we decided, you know, this is not going to work out real well because our daughter was about ready to get out of high school. And, and so we started talking and I said, you know, let's, I'm, what do you think about moving to Reno? My wife is from Reno. And I said, you know, I've always loved Reno. You can golf and ski in the same day here. And I said, there's no humidity. I tease people. I said, you know, you can pour a bowl of cornflakes or open up a, a row of saltine crackers and forget about it for two weeks and come back. And it's just like you open them up. You do that where I grew up and it's stale in 22 seconds. Right, right. So I had gone back to business school just because the whole personal computer revolution and it was already of the clone phase before I had even touched a keyboard. And so I said, you know, I got to get ready for this. So I, I went back to, to, to school to get my MBA and, and, and with a finance emphasis and did that while we were in the Bay Area. We got our daughter off to college at Northwestern and then the day I got out of school was the day we moved to Reno. And, and then so I was no longer doing high-rise underground foundation type work, you know, that I had learned on the other company. And then when I got here, started doing, you know, residential and commercial construction. And then within about six or eight months, I opened up my own business, you know, my own construction company later to 
set for my architectural exams and so I could do, you know, design work at West Center Plans and things like that. So we focused on doing design build for, I don't know, 25, 27 years that I was focused on doing that before I started teaching and consulting and doing expert witness and, you know, other business consulting. Expert witness. I got to hear about this. What is expert witness? I didn't even know that. Anytime you have a civil litigation or a civil lawsuit, in order to prove each opposing party will employ or use their experts in the area oh, okay. of dispute. And then, of course, architecture and construction and engineering, you've got a lot of technical issues that either somebody doesn't comply with or somebody takes artistic interpretation and modify and usually not with a good result. So in order to make the claim valid, a party would hire an expert that's licensed in that particular profession or discipline to explain industry standards, rigors, you know, normal prudent course of action and, you know, bolster their case. So the fact that I was both a licensed architectural professional and a licensed contractor, I had a dual-edged sword when it came time for construction defect cases and other things where there was a non-compliance or a performance expectation that wasn't being met, you know, from probably to the manufacturer or industry standard. And that's, that's fun. That was just, you like that. I loved it. Yeah. There's nothing. And I had been sued, you know, the same thing as a contractor, and, but there's nothing, there's nothing better than being, you know, subpoenaed or to have your deposition taken and, and being paid hundreds of dollars an hour by the attorney that's questioning in you. And, and he's basically, he paid me to piss him off. <laughs> because it was, it was not the answer he was looking at. Right, right. It was the answer he needed to hear. Right, right. So some of my depositions became quite comical because, you know, you've got representatives from all the other parties to the lawsuit or the litigation. They're all, you know, on the other end of the table where your depositions are being taken. And whenever they could figure out that the lawyer was building to a crescendo, they would all drop what they were doing to turn and watch and hear what I was saying because it would just like pop to the attorney's below and into it. <laughs> go to another, go to another sheet, start all over. And there's a lot of satisfaction in that. I, I can only imagine. So how did you meet Dorothy? Well, I had been living and working in Trinidad in the Caribbean and we were waiting for materials, a barge that was being chartered and towed to Trinidad with, with more construction equipment and materials for the project. And it was late because of, of inclement weather at sea. And so we, uh, there were two or three of us and we decided we're going to go over to Barbados and, you know, roll around her. And in Barbados being one of the highlights of the Caribbean as far as tourists, not only for the United States, but for also from, from Europe, they have, they have a, a deal they still do. And in fact, it's grown to other places called the Jolly Roger. And basically it's, it's a pirate ship and there's different themes of what they do. Some they've evolved now to where there were dinner shows and productizes and stuff. But at the time you pay $25, you got on the, you got on the Jolly Roger in the Bridgetown Harbor. The band was up on the bow. You know, the quarter deck was a dance floor. The starting was where the barbecue grill was. The galley was the, was the bar, the rum locker. And you got a four-hour deal out of it. You know, they did it during the daytime, and you could swing off a rope and then jet skis and sailboats and war skiing and all that kind of stuff would, would, would play around, and you could take advantage of that. And then they also had things at night, but the only difference was you were supposed to get the war. You were just supposed to dance and eat and play and, you know, 
And so we decided to do the Jolly Roger. Only this time it was a night cruise and Dorothy and, and Vicki, her daughter from a previous marriage, were there with some of her law school friends. And so we were all on the Jolly Roger and having a good time. The three of us that were from Trinidad, we realized that that particular Jolly Roger was where all the local Bajan, Barbadian, Bajan gigolos would go to play and to party. And so when we got there, they were kind of scoping out who they were going after and where their targets were and stuff. And the two guys that I was with, one of them, his nickname was Ivan the Terrible because he had a great big red bushy beard. And the other guy was, he was the big Kahuna. So these guys were, were giants compared to me. And we knew the idol lingo. And so we told these guys, stayed away from the her and her and her. <laughs> one of them being Vicky, who was this little toe-headed, you know, blonde, 12 year old that was double jointed dancing with anybody and everybody. Dorothy, on the other hand, was with her good friend and her husband. Her good friend was eight months pregnant, and her husband was a CPA tax attorney. And he, believe it or not, although Jolly Roger was reading a paperback book. So Dorothy is sitting there watching Vicki out there gyrating with all of us, and then you know, a beached whale, pregnant, eight-month-old friend of hers, and then the other stick in the mud who was reading a paperback book. So we're all out there dancing and having a good time, and Dorothy came out there and started reprimanding Vicky about, get over here, you get too close, and all this kind of stuff. And so um, I said something to the effect. I said, you know, we're watching her. Don't, you know, who are you, her sister? And boy, did she turn. Barbara <laughs> mother, you know, for back, back. And <laughs> And we ended up having dinner together, all of our, you know. So she went back to she went back to Reno. She was working in the district attorney's office. She'd been out of law school for four or five years, and and I went back to Trinidad. And then a couple of months later, she came to Trinidad for a week, and then went back to Reno. And she resigned from the DA's office and took a job as a consular officer, diplomat you know, soon to be ambassador with the State Department. And she and Vicki packed up to move to D.C. And in the meantime, I went back to Trinidad and still working there, trying to finish up projects thinking that the end of the year. This, we met in April of 82. And so then we got we got to a point and then she called or wrote. This was an old school kind of, you know, relationship. There was a lot of letter writing and cassette tapes, you know, a phone call. But anyway, she she said, well, I drew my assignment. The, the State Department's going to post me to Monterey, Mexico. And I thought, well, that's not a bad commute between Houston, where my company was based, and Monterey. And so they were getting jacked up. She was already in Spanish training and a bunch of other stuff. So I get back to I get back to Houston around the end of the year, and I've got a you know, few weeks to work on things. And and then I, dis I was going to disappear for three months because I had vacation coming. And I was gone three days, and they called me back into the office because they were going to post me to Paris, France. And that didn't ever happen with this company because we did things on the site. We didn't do things in big cities, much less like Paris. And so after about a month of getting the contract, big $600 million contract, it was a Italian, Korean, French, and American consortium that I was on the project management team. I had, you know, after after getting all that done, and my my proposal to Dorothy was, how would you like to tell the State Department to f off? <laughs> so she resigned from the State Department. We got married, and then she and Vicky moved to me moved to moved to Paris and then Kuwait. So by the time we got married in July of '83, 
Dorothy says it was 32. I say it was 33. That's the total number of days that we had physically spent together, none of which was more than a week at the time. And so we came to Reno, got married on Saturday. We were in judges' chambers on Monday. I adopted Vicky, and we had a, you know, I got a, I got the bonus, I got the bonus deal out of the deal. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had Zach once we got to Kuwait. Okay. And so how long did you guys spend in Kuwait? We were in Kuwait for, I was going back and forth once a month for a week or 10 days because I was the project control manager and I had to have these meetings in different places and wherever the clients and the other things were going to be held. And then we lived there for a year and, and that's where Zach was born. Nice. <clears throat> nice. So you started your family back in Reno when, or you came back when? Got married here in 1983 and, and then we... Dorothy returned to Reno when we got finished with our San Francisco experience. And that was in, you know, December of 1987. Nice. Nice. And so coming up to <clears throat> your life as a contractor and then Dorothy was, had her career and what she was doing. Yeah, I started, I started my own business and then I got it. And then Dorothy ran for district attorney in 1990 and was elected first female district attorney in Washoe County. And I continued to have my construction business and things until I got to the point where I got rid of my adult daycare and, and I needed a energy recharge and, and teaching and doing some of the other stuff was good. So I just started doing one or two big homes a year, working out of the house, teaching, and, you know, writing and doing some other things with the National Association of Home Builders, which was extremely professionally beneficial. And because I, I tell people that, you know, the best decision I ever made was Dorothy. And the second best decision I ever made was joining one of the organizations, the National Association of Home Builders. And so I always like to ask this, people have been around here for a while. I mean, Reno now compared to when you moved here, are you still excited about Reno? Oh, very. Yeah. Yeah. I love being here. It's changing every day, just like it always has. Yeah. And it's, there's, you can still golf and ski in the same day. And I do. And, you know, I'm very close and it's easy to get to and from the airport. It's easy to get to and from the lake and this mountain. And, you know, so it's, it's just a good place. Yeah. In fact, it's a great place. And I've lived in a lot of different places and done a lot of different things worldwide. And yeah, I like visiting other places. Don't get me wrong, but Reno, Reno's home. Reno's home. So let's go to where I met you, which is running. And so how did you start running? What? Because you didn't, you didn't really mention anything about running when you're growing up. No, I didn't run. In fact, I didn't start running until I was in my early 50s. And it started, you know, like, I'm trying to remember if it was a Memorial Day barbecue or something like that. Our niece, Kelly, you know, she put out, she threw down a challenge to all the 12 or 15 people around the table eating corn, you know, corn on the cob and ribs or whatever. And I'm going to run a half marathon in October. Who's in? And of course, everybody's hand went up and she's <laughs> training and one by one people dropping off like flies. Well, the same group that was around the table for Memorial Day got together again for Labor Day. And this time Kelly held court going around the table what's your story? And somebody would, you know, I okay, my knee. And then she went around the table and she got to me and she said, okay, Uncle Michael, what's your excuse? And I said, I don't have an excuse. I'm running with you. And she was shooting on, on, you know, trying to do a sub two hour half marathon, the rock and roll down in San Jose. 
So I had about a month and I did what I did, but I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, and I ran it. Kelly did, you know, she ran like a 208 and I ran like a 212. So I held my own and, and then I got hooked a little bit. So I ran, I ran streets and, you know, marathons and I qualified for, ran Boston a couple of times and, you know, didn't, I don't know, I think I've done 25 or 26 marathons and a lot of other shorter halves and 10 Ks, turkey trots, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, 5K run and pukes and stuff. (laughs) And, and then, and then it came up to where I wanted to run the Pikes Peak Marathon. And the Pikes Peak Marathon is, is a trail race but you go straight up and you come straight back down again. And of course, living here, this is a good training environment for doing that. You don't quite get up the same elevation, but that's when I got connected with and met the Trents and a few other people. My my running wife, as I call her, Sherry Tweet, and, and a few other people, you know, running daughter, Jill Anderson, Jenny Capel, and you know, so that's kind of how things have, have evolved and grown since 2010, 2011. Gotcha, yeah, and I, I was, I joined the club right after that. Yeah. And then, so you, <clears throat> and as far as ultras go, when did, the, when did you start running ultras? Well, after I started training and running with the, with the striders doing, you know, getting ready to run the Pikes Peak marathon. And then I would go out with them and we would run the Tahoe rim trail or, mm-hmm. and you know, Jenny, I helped crew and pace her when she did her FKT around Lake Tahoe and, then doing different things with aid stations at the TRT and Silver State 50-50 and then kind of getting involved in Western States. You know, it was all pretty, because I was always an outdoor guy anyway. Right. You know, I just didn't know. I just didn't know how what the benefit of associating, because I didn't know that this group existed until I got in the middle of it. And then I was going, oh boy, this is cool, you know. And it's been quite that. It's been it's been it's been very very gratifying and and exciting. And this is one of the things about people, you know, all the different kinds that you run into. Most of the time, everybody's got some kind of protective defense mechanism or shields up, or you know, you, you gotta you gotta really drill on for a while. But but ultra runners, they take care of moving all that stuff away, and you see the real character almost more than you need to. That's right, you know. So you're still right, and and that was that was one of the things that Dorothy didn't quite get when I made the transition from streets to trails, you know, because with the streets, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to be in within, you know, and shoot for a three thirty or three forty five or whatever on the marathon. You know, it was plus or minus, you know, five or ten minutes either side of that target in the car. All first time she went to see me finish a fifty mile race, she went up there. She ate, she took a nap, she got pissed off, she went home, <laughs> and I still had to finish the face. And then so when I did my first hundred miler and flamed out, she back hiked where I was. And I was in bad shape. I'd been puking and doing all kinds of other stuff. And with the crew that she was with, the Jill Anderson and Liz Drake and, you know, whatever, she finally got a frozen personal where they would think it was on NBA stations down in San Diego. I don't brag. And and so when she when she walked up to me, I didn't know if I was hallucinating or what. And because I was I mean, it was so bloody hot and I was so out again. I just wanted to get out of there quick. And she went open my eyes, there she was. She says, Are you okay? I said, Are you real? She said, Yeah, I'm real. I said, Yeah, it's just been a bad day in River City. And she says, Oh, well, if you're okay. She says, I 
finally understand why. <laughs> so after that trail running, she never questioned it. She never got pissed off. She was always accepting it. Didn't matter if it was a male, female, a carlo, one person. It's fine. And she just automatically added hours to where another. And then I'm a much better. I'm a much better crew crew member and and <laughs> and and somebody that's not exerting the. You know, not putting out the exertion to run a race because I can, I can help people get there. Right. Much better than, right. I've done it. I've been challenged. I know I can do it, but I'm to a point. To, I'm in the silverback section. You know, I'm not, I don't have 22 year old knees like my doctor told me. So, <laughs> so you ran Western States. Yeah. You got to tell us about that. It was an interesting thing because I was working the aid station that Striders do at Forest Hill in, in 2014. And I signed up to pace, you know, on just the first come, first serve that somebody that needs a pacer and a kid came through from New Zealand and his mother and father and sister had traveled with him. They had made the, they had made the trip to, to, to the race and he came in, I think he was through, he came through Forest Hill, you know, seven o'clock, six, six or seven o'clock. So it was, it wasn't dark yet. He was, he was doing quite well. And we left the aid station and took off down the trail. Well, his wheels came off really quick as soon as it got dark. And it got dark, and, you know, by the time we got to Cal 1, he, his back was starting to bother him. And then by the time we got to Peachstone at mile 70, he was in the chair. And, I mean, he was trussed up, locked up. And so when I got there, if you, you know Peachstone, but Peachstone is a little postage stamp aid station down in the meat hole and it's for me the way I understand and know the race, the, the that particular aid station is at a critical point in the race for most runners in the mid to the back of the pack because everybody knows about all the adrenaline and the and the rush that you get coming through and seeing everybody in Forest Hill. It's a mini city. A lot of times there's lights, there's noise, there's excitement, encouragement, love, kisses, fresh pair of shoes, whatever it is. And then you know within ten miles the adrenaline crash. The fatigue, the whining, the sniveling. If if one of the three stooges didn't take over somewhere <laughs> earlier during the day, you know, my three stooges, I, I refer to them as my evil twin, Skippy, and Speedy or Greedy. <laughs> one of those three has had a bad influence on somebody. Their, their wheels are going to come off. And usually it's halfway between Forest Hill and the river, and there's no easy out. You got to sit until we get cleaned up and evac. Well, my 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 runner from New Zealand, that's where he he got his he dropped, and then I just went into aid station mode and I started running the psych ward and jumped in people's grill and got them motivated or prompt a goose or whatever to get them <laughs> right. out of there. And I didn't know any of the people that were running the aid station. They were just they were all taking bets on what I did, you know, in real life. And is he a doctor? Is he a psychologist? <laughs> Contract? He knows all this stuff about this equipment, and he's in somebody's head, and he's get. This guy, he's in his grill, and this other person over here, he's treating with hit like he's got to have some kind of psychological training or experience <laughs> or something. And it was funny. We, you, you know, just got people out of there. And and so later, that was obviously in June, I had I already flamed out at, at San Diego that year, and I was planning to go back down and do the, the Cuyamaca 100K to get a qualifier to get into the lottery. And then I went down to Cuyamaca and I flamed out at that for a couple of different reasons. But between the Cuyamaca race and, and Havelina, which is the end of October, I'd signed up for Havelina because I knew what I had done wrong. 
I didn't use up everything that was in the tank. So I wasn't, I didn't have any re real recovery, you know, period. And I had a game plan to what I needed to do at Havelina. In the meantime, the aid station captain called and said, are you, you have a qualifier? And I said, no, I'm leaving to go down to get the race, you know, get my qualifier and get in the lottery in a couple of weeks when I go down to Havelina. And she said, well, she says, go get your business handled because the, the runner that we had designated to run this year, he signed up for a race that actually finishes the day after the qualifying period for Western. And I said, who didn't check the calendar? And she says, no, no. She says, he's done this before. And I thought, <laughs> and he didn't learn. So I, she says, so no pressure, go get your qualifier. You're in the race. And so that's how it came down. And, and so that was, that was, you know, November of, of 2014. So I ran the Western States in 2015. Right. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I was there, I saw you finish. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, it, it was quite an emotional time because our daughter had been diagnosed with breast cancer and I had planned to drop out. And she said, no, you run for me. So we had a, we had a deal where I would check in with her every day or she would check in with me to see how things were going. She came down for the race and, and was there. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. And so what, what goes through your mind while you're running? <laughs> I've got so much material in my head. My, my Wurlitzer, I, I have plenty to entertain me, or I have plenty to, to be entertained from personal experiences, noises, people, anecdotes, words, smells, sounds, <laughs> and I never know what, it's on random play. I mean, you know, things are playing now that I hadn't thought of when yeah. I came down here today. And... I usually have some mantras that I use, you know, one down, one to go, 62 down, one to go. I just try to remain in the present. I enjoy looking around, you know, training. I take pictures and make sure it's just my job to kind of, you know, shepherd and watch people and have enough extra food or water because that's just the way I roll and try to look out for stuff or be prepared as I am or as I grew up. It's, it, you know, the old Boy Scout motto of being prepared, I've taken on to be prepared for anything, anytime, anywhere as an adult, as a parent, you know, runner, whatever. And I've had some challenges that I've learned from, not necessarily just from running, but just from life. Right. You know, so it all goes into, it all goes into my, <laughs> it all goes into my kit or my toolbox, you know, but just remaining in the present. Share with me a really important time where you had to be prepared and it was really dangerous. Well, or you were prepared. I guess that's the question. You were prepared because it was dangerous. Well, there's been a lot of different things that I've been, that I've had dealt or experienced, if you will. Accidents, both in offshore. There's been people killed and, you know, loss of a limb or, you know, collapse or something. There's been, there's been serious accidents. I mean, it's not like dropping a two by four. It's right. like when something, when something breaks, there's crane booms and there's people that there, you know, there's lots of casualties and stuff. And at the same time, there's a lot of training that I've had to be knowledgeable and not panic. And I think I'd mentioned, or maybe not, I, you know, I use CPR as a teenager and in my early twenties twice. And then I used it again once, you know, in my forties when I was out and I, I knew enough about what had to happen. The first two were fine because they were more of a 
drowning kind of a thing. The third one was a heart attack. And while we did CPR for an hour and a half, that's just how long it took for, you know, the EMS people to respond based on where we were out in White Pine County. So there's been those kinds of emergencies. You know, there's obviously all kinds of things that you have with your kids and your family and friends and, you know, bumps and bruises or crash and boom and bangs and stuff like that. But I, I you know, I, I, I look back and when, when you told me about this, I kind of thought, you know, what are the things that I think the three things that you wanted me to tell you about that kind of shaped my life? Yeah. And I, and I didn't necessarily think of the three things. I thought of three categories of things because they really, they really molded me. One, one was responsibility, one was tragedy, and one was disappointment. And I had a, I had a triple all in 12 months. You know, I mentioned the fact that I, that I, you know, didn't get into the academy. I didn't qualify. So that was my, that was my disappointment. That was kind of like the third of the three things that had all happened within a period of about the, you know, 12, 10 or 12 months. Going back 10, 10 months from that to the previous Christmas, because this happened in August when I got washed out of, of 72, but Christmas of 70, uh, I was out with two other guys and typical Friday night knuckleheads. I was the one with the little Volkswagen and, you know, we were out doing something, but we weren't that night doing anything that justified what happened. We got pulled over by a cop and accused of shooting off some fireworks and stuff. Well, fireworks are legal in Florida, so what's the big deal? Right. And searched the car. The two other guys, one of the other guys was my best friend. He was also an Eagle Scout and searched the car, searched us, and he found a hunting knife in the, in the jacket that the good, my best friend had. And the cop put him in handcuffs and put him in his patrol car and was going to take him to jail. And I said, well, can I tell him that we'll go and tell his parents what's going on? He said, I don't care what you do, but you're not talking to my prisoner. And I thought, whoa. He got back in the car with the other guy and he said, take me home. I'm not going down there with you. And I said, what do you mean? He, he said, you let me out. So I dropped him off. Now you have to understand my best friend was one of nine kids. His father was a scoutmaster in town, had a reputation as the king of the disciplinarian hill. All seven boys in the family were Eagle Scouts. And so that was what, you know, was happening at this particular Christmas time for the, and he was a very high profile, high level executive with one of the manufacturing companies that was there. So I show up at their house at about 11.15 at night, and I'm the one that goes inside by myself and, and addresses Mr. and Mrs. Light that their son is in a cop car for nothing that he did, and their other two kids that were home from college had the family vehicles. So I had to sit with the parents and wait for somebody to get found and come home, and then Mr. Light took off and went and got the lawyer and got the kid out of jail and came back home. I guess I got out of there about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. But that was a huge dose of character responsibility for me as a 17-year-old to understand it ain't going to be fun and it's going to be scary, but that's what's got to happen. So you throw, you throw that in and then July of the following summer, just before finding out that I got washed out, that same best friend and one of his brothers drowned in a scuba diving accident while we were at the scout camp. I had taken off to go back to Pensacola for the weekend. Uh, one of his brothers showed up with the tanks and they went cave diving and drowned in the, in the cave. And so that was tragedy of 
an exponential right. proportion for a 17-year-old like me. And and then, of course, you know, a month or six weeks later, I found out that I had this huge life disappointment balloon get popped and ruptured. So those three things together kind of prepared me on how to deal with what else life was going to give me down the road. And I had some other tragedies that, that really, while they were tough and very, you know, shattering, I, I knew I'd be okay in a period of time. You know, one of the girls that I dated in high school, you know, it was kind of funny. We dated in high school and then we stayed away, but we stayed, we stayed good friends. She went off to Florida State. I went to Florida. So there was already a kind of a UNR, <laughs> UNLV yeah. kind of a animosity, you know, co-rival thing. Well, Valerie lived in the Kyle Omega house in Tallahassee. And that was the same sorority house that Ted Bundy had broken into, and he had attacked and bludgeoned to death a couple of her sorority sisters that were either on either side of her room or across the hall from her. Thank God Valerie was in Pensacola that weekend. But unbeknownst to us, it took about a year because we had both graduated and then we had started dating again, and it was kind of an interesting how that all got going again. But I took off on my first foreign assignment to Panama and my dad called and told me that she had committed suicide because she still had a lot of stuff that she hadn't dealt with over over the guilt mm-hmm. with with the Ted Bundy, Kyle Omega incident. And then of course, Vicki, which was just a tremendous tragic loss for all of us and the kids and, and for both Dorothy and so. Yeah. But, uh, you know, those things... I got, I got introduced and, and they were dealt to me, you know, in my youth and as I was growing into where I am today. So they kind of, I don't want to say they tempered me, but at least they, they, they gave me a chance to work through them. I had a tremendous support system of champions, as I call them, that would, you know, watch over, be around for advice, people that I would pick on because I knew they were the champions of what I needed to find out about. Right. If it was engineering or if it was auto mechanicing or whatever, I had a I had a pool of people that I knew that I could draw to and and they were concerned and invested in me. My banker, he was like my second father. He he taught me everything I know about credit and finance and I mean the hard way. Like, you know, I bought my first car when I was sixteen on a 90 day note and, and then, and then through back in those days, this, this is going to work. This is going to, you know, warp some people, but he, he, in those days, the bank officer could decide if you got a MasterCard or a visa and what the credit limit was. And so when he, when he found out about me washing out from not being able to go to one of the academies and trying to, you know, cobble enough coin to go to transfer to school. He, he said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get you a MasterCard. I want you to use it for little things, get about a three-month history, and then I'm going to get you a Visa card. Okay. And he says, don't worry about it right now. I just want you to spend it, but I want you to pay it off every month, every month. And he says, it doesn't matter, $20, $30, whatever it is, but don't go crazy. It's not like unlimited funds. And I was 17. I didn't know. And so after about six months, he says, okay, this is how you're going to do it. He says, when you get down to school, he says, I, you know, when you find out what your tuition and your books are, he says, I want you to go to the bank and I want you to get a cash advance, pay your tuition and bills off. Okay. And then in 30 days, when the MasterCard bill comes in, you go to the bank and you get a cash advance on your visa to pay the MasterCard off. Okay. And that, don't worry about it. Pay the MasterCard off. And then when 30 days, that's, that's, you go to the other, don't use your MasterCard in the meantime, go get another cash advance and pay off the visa. 
So he had it broken down and figured out where I could I could do something 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And he says, and since you're on the quarter system, school's over at the 90th day, you come back to Pensacola. He says, I'll open up, you'll get a 90-day note. And what we'll do is we'll renew the note, add the interest to it, and you'll just restart everything. So that's what I did for nine out of 10 quarters that it took for me to graduate from college. So when I graduated from college, I had $5,500 in debt, but a stack of 90-day notes that were, you know, stapled and renewed and, and increased. <laughs> that was about an inch and a half high. <laughs> so that was my introduction to high finance as a knucklehead. That's <laughs> beautiful. And then, and, you know, and then being, being single out of college and, and, you know, had the world by the tail, I had all my school debt paid off in about four months once I started making money, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I didn't have right, anything to right. spend it on. So, but he has always been in my corner. My aunt and uncle, Uncle Hobie and Aunt Sarah were always in my corner and a number of other people, my third and fourth grade teachers and, you know, my scoutmaster and counselors. And I just, I've got such a, I've got such a corral of champions through my life that I could pick up the phone now and it would not be anything other than What's happening? You know, they yeah. have any guilt. Yeah. How you haven't called or why? Or yeah. they, they know that things are going on and they stay in touch. Or, I, yeah. you know, I'm a caller, not a callee. Right. So, right. Anyway, but lots of lots. And of course, different kinds of champions. But, you know, we, we, we've always talked about how, how raw runners are, especially ultra runners with regard mm -hmm. to their emotions and their, and their sense of reality. And, and you just don't find, you just don't find that on the street. You know, you gotta you gotta get up close and get some of it on you. That's right. You know, that's right. I think one of the things I've probably noticed more than anything in doing this podcast is, um, I, I had a saying I've said for a long, long time, and I don't know when I heard it, but the teachers are gone these days. There's a lot of there's still some of us out there, right? And I just wanted to know what you thought about that because I, what I do see is. Your generation, the generation you grew up in, and it was very much a communal thing, mm -hmm. community, community, community. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people I see struggle today don't have the teachers that yeah. back then. And one of the things the club does is it introduces people to a community yeah. of teachers. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, and that's and that's a great resource for people, and and through running that opens up all the other possibilities of what that person can bring to the table to be their champion for something. And it could be finance, it could be taxes, it could be auto mechanics, it could right. be pets. I mean, it, you know, I've been, in, I've, I've been included in enough now that it, it, sometimes it's, it's, it's mediating a divorce, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, you were the matchmaker between a wedding or, you know, a couple. Um, just all kinds of possibilities once you get the barriers down to where there's a connection. And that's, kind of what I kind of, when I started teaching, I got, I got, I got into teaching because I've always taught, you know, at scout camp, working with kids and doing things like that, you know, and, and that was one of the nicknames that, that Vicki hung on me is she nicknamed me Mr. Professor because I was always teaching a lesson or something, you know, <laughs> Mr. Perfect, Mr. Procrastinator. P was her favorite. <laughs> There's something in the letter P or that starts with the letter P that applies to Michael. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and then when, when I got when I got involved with the, with teaching at the collegiate level, I started thinking back about some of the people that I had that was teaching me, and they were the same age group that they were the same age range that I was. They were practicing professionals that were more concerned about giving us the street smarts, and so I took that attitude into 
when I started teaching and I said, you know, the first day of class, I'm technically your teacher and you're technically my students, but I want you to treat me like I'm your employer and you're going to be my employee. So if you're not coming to class, I need to know about it. I don't care what it's for. TMI. I don't need an explanation. I don't see. I don't need to see a note. I just need to know that you're still engaged. Yeah. Okay. And that's why some of the teacher course evaluations that I would get back would be so interesting. And and even now that I've kind of I've retired from the community college construction management architecture. That's what you taught. That's what I was teaching. Or how long did you do that? Well, just short of fifteen years. Wow. And then when I and then when the COVID crash in the state and they had early buyout options, I said, "Pick me, pick me," and they did. And I didn't let the door hit me in the butt. But I was out playing, and I don't want to say playing. I was doing things that I finally had time and money to do. I went to ground school. To, I'm working on trying to get my pilot's license. I've got that carrot. Once I finish some other things, then I'm going to get nice. a plane. But I've got the. I've got the ground school. I, I wanted to become a ski patroller, so I, I enrolled and went through the training to, you know, to drive a toboggan down the hill with somebody in it and not think it was Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. <laughs> and then after that, thinking, okay, well, this is a pretty easy thing to figure out. You know, the ski patroller is about 60, 65% of the EMT basic stuff. And with emeritus status with the education system, I said, well, let me sign up and get my, get my EMT. So I went to EMT school. Then I helped some friends sail a boat. You know, I was one of four on a 52-foot catch, and we sailed nonstop from St. Thomas to, to Grenada to get it out and put it on the hard for dry dock and, and servicing stuff. I helped our friend Andy, you know, give probably four or 5,000 vaccinations. You know, I, don't know his, I was his Captain Chaos of organizing all the traffic in the, in the drive through I teased him. I said, you organize the shooters, the people with the needles. I'll organize, you know, getting the forms. And so we did We did quite well. We got all, all the cohorts. We started with the 75 and the 70 and the 65, and then we did the Hispanic and the underserved, you know, indigents. And that was very gratifying. And other things, but then here comes UNR, and they said, you're the only guy that we've heard that can teach this class or this because they had started a construction management emphasis for their graduate civil engineers and their undergraduates. And so they said, we want you to teach a scheduling class, and then we want you to teach a, an estimating class. And so, okay. So very first semester, I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is going to be good because I'm asking all the right questions because, unfortunately, some of these civil engineers have got heavy theory but no practicality. <laughs> and I'm getting the, you know, I'm getting this six heads look when I'm asking them questions about when they've done or what they've touched or do they know this or are they familiar with something else. And, you know, like I said, I'm getting a whole lot of sideways bobbleheads that aren't really on board yet. But at the end of the semester, it was interesting. And I was, uh, I was, I was thinking, boy, these teacher course evaluations are going to be just horrendous. And the one that I read, you know, you check the footballs, all the quantitative, strongly agree, strongly disagree, whatever it is, or neutral. Then you get to the qualitative part where they put the comments in. And I've always encouraged the students to put comments in there. If the heating system doesn't work, you don't have enough parking, this is the place to complain or make, right, your, right. make your point. I learned more in Professor Holmes's class this semester than I learned in the entire time that I was here at the U, in the UNR civil engineering program. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed when the dean sees this. You know? But he didn't. He, he was very congratulatory. congratulatory congratulatory and appreciative of that dimension that I was adding to this. So I'm also helping out with their resumes and interview skills and negotiating and 
you know, I'm, I'm teaching them the parts that I can with regard to their professional engineering exam on the side. And, you know, so I'm very engaged and, and that's the part where I'm trying to pass it on with yeah. the, the teaching yeah. them all the things that I've got the scars to prove. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to take your life, and this is not a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you were to take your life and boil it down to a couple of words, what would you say your life is? Extremely wonderful. You know, one of the questions that I think you were, you know, what are you doing right now? I had thought about that. I said, you know, I would like to think that I, that I am excelling at being retired and, and that I only want to do things that are interesting, challenging, purposeful, and fun. Wow. You know, and I love that. And, and that was the rule that I had with the kids. And that's always been the rule that I've had with the grandkids. And then other kids, you know, Jenny Capel's boys and other kid, you know, Micheline and, and, and Chet's two monkeys. And, <laughs> you know, there's just two rules with me. We're going to, we're going to have fun and we're going to eat well. Everything else will take care of itself. <laughs> you might not like what's on your plate, but stay tuned. Yeah. Dessert's coming. Yeah. You might not rake, you might not like raking the leaves. Right. But you'll love diving into the pile afterwards. Yeah. So just, you know, just be patient. Things will work it out. Yeah. And, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Would you say that would be some advice you would give? I mean, one of the questions I have is that if you had somebody that was struggling, What's, what's one thing that you would, you would tell them? I know that there's, that's a huge thing. You've seen a lot of people struggle and I've struggled myself and that would you tell them? Well, and, and, you know, realize, realize and know it can and will get better if you, if you focus on that. Okay. You need to learn to be very, be very humble, be very gracious. You know, you can't go enough with that, but lean, lean in on others that you would consider a champion, you know, one of your personal champions that could help you or or provide an assist for what it is that you have as an issue or a problem. Because those are the people that you want around you that will want, that their first mission is to understand and then try to be understood. You're not trying to convince them how bad it is or anything. They're just trying to understand where you are. That's really good. And if and if they can understand that, then you could probably handle getting to the part where what they say is understood. That's and accepted. And that's and that's huge. The defaults, deep breaths, you know, find something that you know calms you. It could be music, you know, whatever, looking at the sunset. I don't care what it is. But decide and come up with the defaults that you need to employ and use so you can get to that middle safe place without having to figure out what that middle safe place is to work for you as something has, you know, two minutes ago, everything was nice and normal. And, and now it's, you know, <laughs> it's all gone to, you know what, <laughs> you know what, you've got to be able to draw from yeah. the same way you're on the trail when something happens. Yeah. You pull out a piece of paper and, yeah. you, and you got a checklist. The yeah. same thing that happens with a pilot when the engine flames out. You got to have that checklist and you, you've got to have that prepared. Now, you don't have to go through life risk averse, but you got to get to a point in your life to where you can deal with whatever comes your way. And it could be really tragic. It could be really severe. Or it could be something like you just yeah. got, you got, you got a day or three to work because it's only temporary and you got to accommodate that. So that's my best advice for... That is beautiful advice. And I, I really love the way that you put it 
and really kind of also coach the other side of it. Like you can have an answer for somebody, but the preparation for the other person. If you and I disagree about something, the first thing I have to do is understand where you're coming right. from, why you're motivated to have that position. And right. once I understand that, it's a slam dunk for me to figure out what I got to do to yeah. get you to do what I want you to, because right. now I've got the cheat sheet. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, if you can think of things that way, and a very smart man, therapist here in town, you know, he's, he said, you know, most people fall into that victim role too easily. And if you just simply remind yourself, how did I show up to make it possible to have or to enjoy or experience the events that are going on right now? And it could be as simple as going to the 7-Eleven and being part of somebody that comes in with a gun and sticks it up. You're not a victim. You chose to go to the 7-Eleven. <laughs> so hold on there, right. Rocco. You're right. the one that got yourself here. Right. It wasn't the guy that came in with the gun. Right. Deal with it, you yeah. know. And and whatever the choices are, they're yours. Own them, you know. And if it doesn't work out the way, learn from it and don't do the same thing again because that's insanity. It's so good. So a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. I tend to think that, I mean, I get my identity from... A higher power, Christian, love, love God. How do you see identity? Is it is it something that's spiritual, or is it something that is is something else? Well, again, going back to the Boy Scout mm-hmm. laws, yeah. twelve points. You know, the last point of the the twelfth point of the Scout law is reverent. I would like to think that I am an extremely reverent person. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for what an individual believes, motivates, their personal ambitions, their priorities, all those kinds of things. But my sense of reverence is more associated with the human spirit and soul. It's certainly not a materialistic thing. It's certainly not scorekeeping or anything like that. Spiritual in that sense of the word, which tangles into and where is your where is your peace come from? Or what do you right. use as a mechanism to right. find that inner peace and that purpose? And it could be, it could be religious. It could be a whole bunch of other things. It could be nature. You know, I would like to think that the way that I was raised, we started out being very religious. That became a very hypocritical kind of an arrangement. And, you know, it wasn't worth playing to that tune as opposed to having the personal family time on Thursday nights and all days on Sundays. And that's what our parents did with us. And that's, you could count on that. And, and in fact, it was so much fun that we had others that, that joined in part and, and, and became part of that. Sunday afternoons, as an example, it was it was icy time. Mm-hmm. You know, and my dad said, okay, everybody's here. Get in the station wagon. And back in those days, he would drive us one mile in the big station wagon. You know, that seemed like it was a quarter of a mile long. One of the Ford Country Squire, you know, right. beaver cleaver kind of wood paneled things. And he came back in and we got back and, and, um, and he says, he came in and he was telling my my mother. Um, he said, "Phyllis says I spent a dollar and seventy cents on those ices today." And she said, "My goodness!" And you have to understand, back in those days, an icy was ten cents. <laughs> right? He had seventeen kids in the car, <laughs> and, and that's what happened that Sunday afternoon. Because and, and there was always, you know, somebody was always one. One kid, I remember when he came over after we were out playing and my mother was cooking dinner, fried chicken or something. And her fried chicken was out of this world because she would use pancake oh, wow. instead of flour. Yeah. So it had a little sweet crust to it. 
And I'll never forget this. He said, Miss Holmes, I only got 25 cents, but I give that to you if you let me have dinner here. <laughs> um, so it was a community. Yeah, it was very much a community. I, I think I think growing up in my family was the first third of my life, you know, into my mid-teens when the, the triple hit and when I was a junior in high school. I think the scouting program and the mentors the roommates, the people that I worked with, and the understanding and exposure to all the different values and vocations and opportunities, it, it, that was huge because at the same time I could grow and at the same time develop the confidences. I was always very self-confident because I was the oldest in the family, yeah. but it took, it took it to another level. And then I think the third part of my late 20s you know, and my mature phase, if you will, since my late 20s, early 30s, was was definitely Dorothy and the bonus package of Vicky, Because then, you know, I had a true partner in everything and a very supportive person that I could share everything with, and she did as well. I, in a lot of ways, both Dorothy and I have always been very successful individually, and we were always going to be okay because we had that drive, we had that ambition, and very, very good intuition and gut. But when she became involved politically and being a female prosecutor, not only here at the, at, at, you know, in San Francisco when she was an assistant U.S. attorney and in the AG's office or the Department of Corrections or as a judge, it was much more important for me to be part of a very supportive role for her, for what she was doing, because it was it was a different world for her much more difficult than it would ever was for me, you know, as a male, right? You know, with the misogyny and some of the times, and she broke through some ceilings. She she shattered she shattered a lot of yes, things. She did. Yeah. yeah, and still is. Yeah, I'm not one of them. I have both eyes. I have no visible scars. You're still here. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm. I still say yes, dear, a lot. Yeah, it's, I, I know my. Strong, I have you, a very strong sense of self preservation. Yeah, <laughs> happy wife. It's happy life. Yeah, yeah. I I get encouraged. And at the same time, she's she's understood and she's kind of following my lead in a lot of ways now with regard to how to relax and really enjoy yeah. things now that we're nice. retired and, and able to pick and choose nice. things and travel and enjoy grandkids and you know, all those kinds of things, which are where we're supposed to be. Right. Last question. Oh, what is your definitions of success? You know, that's a very personal thing for me. I don't look at achievements, success, accomplishments, the same way that a lot of other people do. I think of those things as a very personal application or goal or wish or dream or something like that. I feel just as good about making some kind of trick golf shot, ricochet off a rock and going where I want it to go. That's a great sense of accomplishment. That's a great sense of success. And at the same time, you know, a life goal of doing something that's a longer progression of, of, of steps, trainings, you know, things like that. It has a lot to do with the effort and how much of a priority things are. If it's important enough to me, I've always figured a way to make it work. Yeah. You know, part of my makeup, my characteristics, my five things, responsibility is one of the things that has always been in my core. And so there's a tremendous sense of obligation to complete something that I've started or mm -hmm. gone after. It may have taken a little bit longer. It may have, you know, not worked out the way that I had hoped it to. Right. But, you know, I would, I would have to say that it would come down to 
your own internal challenges and goals and what's the level of acceptance or perfection, if you will. Some things, I, you know, eh, it's not as good as I could have done it, but it's okay. Uh, you know, it, it, there's all kinds of different things about how to be successful, you know, shooting a target or doing something in life. I'd like to be remembered as somebody that, that, you know, gave it my best, applied with what I had in my toolbox at the time, did the best with what I had to work with and, you know, get through something yeah. without any regrets right. or be able to say, I don't regret doing it, but if I do it again, I'm going to change this because I can get a better outcome. Yeah. So, you know, I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than that. That's beautiful. Well, so. I, you know, you get what you pay for. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, it's it, it has been for me too. It's you know, there's 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 other things that we could talk about on the side, or you know, I'll I'll have to tell you about <laughs> you know running with the bulls one time, or and some of the other excitement things that I've done. You ran with the bulls. And yeah. You didn't tell you didn't tell us about it. No, I you know we'll do we'll do, we'll do a part two someday. Okay. <laughs> I got to set the hook. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> there is going to be more. <laughs> Crazy Uncle Mike is still in the street. Yeah, that's right. All right, brother. I thank appreciate you. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you, Mike, for your identity journey. One of the things that I love about Mike's story was his desire to help people. It is at the core of his being. He's always prepared, no matter what's going on, to serve and love on people. I love that when we were talking about how there was a lack of teachers today, he quickly responded by saying, there are still some of us out there. I love what he said about how he would help somebody that was having a hard time. He said, you know, you need to learn to be humble, very humble, be very gracious, lean in on others that you would consider a champion, because those are the people that you want around you. Mike, you are a champion. I am blessed to call you friend. And thank you so much for your identity journey today. Thank you for listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with Ken Castrico. If you want more of this or you want to learn more about my community, go to www.endurancelead.com. That's www.endurancelead.com. Make sure you hit the follow button so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening. And if you found this podcast inspiring, please leave a comment and share it with a friend. Also, be sure to share it online with other people on your social media. Thank you so much. Have a great day.